All right. Well, thank you to everybody who helped to make this service come about. Thank you, Kim family. As always, we are blessed by you. Music team, all the effort that you put into this, tech team, uh, staff, all kinds of people made this happen. And so just a big shout out, a big thank you to each and every single one of you. Uh, as has been mentioned so many times, I mean, this is such a unique Easter Never in our entire lifetime have we had a, a Sunday, an Easter Sunday, uh, where we are unable to gather. And yet, what I'm praying is going to happen out of this Sunday is that we would be more attentive than we normally are. I'm praying that we would be more attentive to the hope of the message of Easter so that maybe, maybe for you, the very first time you would see this clearly, maybe for you it's the thousandth time, but that this unique moment, that God would be pleased to use it to help us to see the hope of of Easter even more clearly than we've ever seen it before. And really, hope is what we need, isn't it? Uh, this, this whole entire last season has shown the need for that. And, and we are always kind of living between this tension between feeling hopeful on the one hand and then being pulled over to a sense of disillusionment on the other. We're always being kind of pulled between uh, these two poles, if you will. If you can remember, think back to the end of 2019. Feels like forever ago now. Uh, we were enjoying our Christmas parties. We, we felt pretty good about life. I mean, the stock market was doing reasonably well. Uh, we had our, our New Year's parties. Everything was great, kind of at the end of 2019. And then just wham, 2020 came crashing through the door. Wildfires in Australia, a global pandemic. And who knows even now what the future is going to hold? Is there a huge recession coming our way? Will life ever be the way that it was? Probably not. We don't know. But this is what I mean when I say we always are moving between feeling hopeful on the one hand and then feeling disillusioned on the other. And it's not just COVID. I mean, I mean, this is just a part of our entire human existence. This is what we've experienced in our society really over the last decades, over our lifetime. There are many reasons that current research is showing us uh, for why we should just feel hopeful about the generation in which we live. Let me just give you a couple of them. For instance, people are more educated and literate than ever before. We have more rights than ever before. Extreme poverty is not solved by any means, but it is at an all-time low worldwide. Wars are smaller and less frequent than at any other time in recorded history. Children are dying less, praise God, and people are living longer. Not only that, there's more wealth than ever before. We can feel hopeful when we kind of read some of this current data, and yet there's a whole other side to the current research. Let me give you some other stats. Symptoms of depression and anxiety are on an 80-year upswing among young people and a 20-year upswing among adults. Each generation is experiencing depression at an earlier age. Since 1985, people are reporting lower levels of life satisfaction. Stress levels have risen over the past 30 years. Drug overdoses have hit an all-time high. And feelings of loneliness are up. Hope and disillusionment. Here's how one author summarizes all of this kind of current research. He says, we are the safest and the most prosperous humans in the history of the world, and yet we are feeling more hopeless than ever before. That really is this feeling of hope 
and the feeling of disillusionment on the other hand. These are the things that we're struggling with. And perhaps most, the most startling example of everything that I've just been talking about here is the fact that wealthy countries and particularly wealthy neighborhoods have higher rates of suicide than poorer countries and those who come from poorer neighborhoods. Hope and disillusionment. So what we need today is not newer phones or, or more vacations or, or greater wealth. What we need more than we've ever needed before is hope. And, and when I say hope, I don't just mean uh, you know, wishful thinking or optimistic or positive thinking about the future. We need to just, you know, we need to feel better and be more optimistic. That's not what I mean when I'm talking about hope. I am talking about a hope that we need that somehow can enable us to get through this current COVID crisis, but not just that, that can enable us to face the very worst things that can come our way in life, and above all, a hope that can face death itself. But does a hope like that even exist? Easter Sunday says, you bet it does. So here's what I want to do with us this morning. I want to do two things, and these are really going to be kind of in sharp contrast with each other. I'm going to warn you up front. So the first half of the message, uh, we're going to do something which I'm going to call facing the uncomfortable truth. And we're going to feel a little bit uncomfortable about some things that we're going to talk about, but don't turn off the live stream. Don't, when you start to squirm a bit, don't say, ah, I don't want to watch this anymore. No, stay tuned, because after we face the uncomfortable truth, we are going to rejoice in the unexpected hope. So let's do those two things this morning. First of all then, let's do this. Let's face the uncomfortable truth. What do I mean by that phrase, the uncomfortable truth? Well, I want to quote two best-selling authors to you today. The first best-selling author is a man named Mark Manson. Uh, he does not believe in God at all. He's a best-selling New York Times author. And I want to show you what he says about the current state of this world. And then I want to quote another best-selling author, the Apostle Paul, yeah, he's a very big best-selling author, the Apostle Paul, and I want to show you what he says. And here's what's pretty incredible about both of these authors. They are both going to come to basically the same conclusion, albeit from very different angles. But both of them are going to be brutally honest about the state of this world. First of all, they're going to both make us face what we're going to call the uncomfortable truth. So let me start with, start with uh, Mark Manson. He kind of puts it a little bit humorously. He says that if he ever worked at Starbucks, uh, he wouldn't be the barista who would take your coffee cup and, and write your name and a nice little positive message on it. Rather, he says he'd be the barista who would take a fine tip marker and he would write an entire paragraph on your coffee cup so that when you picked it up, here is what you would read on your latte. One day, you and everyone you love will die. Are we getting off to a good start? And beyond that, a small group of people, uh, or beyond a small group of people, for an extremely brief, brief period of time, little of what you say or do will ever matter. This, he says, is the uncomfortable truth of life. And everything you think or do is but an elaborate avoidance of it. We are inconsequential cosmic dust, bumping and milling about on a tiny blue speck. We imagine our own importance. We invent our own purpose. We are nothing. And then he's going to end his little note to you, enjoy your coffee. 
Are you going to enjoy your coffee after you've read a little message like that? Uh, I don't know how you're going to enjoy your coffee very well after that. He then jokes in his book and he says uh, the re- this is exactly the reason why he can't get employed because uh, he has to write books because he would never get employed by anyone because that's the kind of stuff that he would do. But then he goes on and he drives home his point. And his point is this. If there is no God, then this universe is all that there is. And if this universe is all that there is, then you and I must face a very uncomfortable truth. We must face the uncomfortable truth that literally everything is doomed. You are going to die. Your children are going to die. Your grandchildren are going to die. Eventually, every single living thing on planet Earth will die. The sun will die. Everything in this universe eventually is going to die. He says you must face this uncomfortable truth. Now, you might be responding right now and be like, oh, come on, Mark. I mean, seriously. We're, I think we're all here for a reason. I, I think that even if I, I make a difference in someone else, else's life, even for a little bit, that means that there's something important and life is worth it for that. And here's how Mark Manson responds to that. He says, quote, well, aren't you just as cute as a button? What he's trying to say is you've got to face the uncomfortable truth. The universe doesn't care if you made a great spreadsheet for your boss. The universe doesn't care that 100,000 people so far have died from COVID-19. What he's arguing is, okay, you can make up all this sense of meaning, but at the end of the day, we must all face the uncomfortable truth that everything is doomed, that everything eventually is going to die. Now, you might still be saying, this is totally depressing. Why did I tune in on Easter? This is not what I wanted to get for an Easter message. I mean, I wanted to hear about hope. And Mark Manson says, oh, you can hear about hope. But what he's pressing you on, and this is where I I agree with Mark Manson, is that we must face the uncomfortable truth first. Any hope that you want to have in life must be able to come up against the uncomfortable truth. It must be able to provide a solution for it. Because if you have no solution for the fact that everything is doomed, then everything that you do is doomed and you can have no hope. Listen, any hope that glosses over this uncomfortable truth is not hope. Any hope that you believe in or someone tries to give you uh, that can't solve, can't provide a solution to this uncomfortable truth is also not a hope. If we're going to have true hope, not just optimistic thinking, but true hope for the future, whatever that hope is, it must be able to come face to face with the uncomfortable truth and it must provide a solution to it. If it can't do that, it's not hope and it's not worth your time. So that's Mark Manson. Now, I want to talk about the Apostle Paul, another best-selling author. Again, it may surprise you to hear this, but the Apostle Paul, at the end of the day, largely agrees with Mark Manson. Comes from a very different angle. But what he's also going to do in our passage that we're about to look at, he's going to make us also face an uncomfortable truth. But here's the thing. The Apostle Paul says that Mark Manson hasn't gone far enough. He's not been honest enough about facing the uncomfortable truth. But before I get to that, I want to set up the Apostle Paul's arguments and the the words we're about to read. I want to set them up by doing a little thought experiment with you. So 
Get your thinking caps on, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to imagine right now that some archaeologists working outside of Jerusalem find some bones, and the bones are proved beyond all doubt, beyond all doubt, to be the bones of Jesus. Here's my question for you. Would this affect your faith? Now, if you're Christians, I can see you right now. If you're sitting with anybody, you're saying, oh, that's a non-question. God raised Jesus from the dead. We can't even answer that question. That's not, it's not really. He has been raised. But just work with me. Just, just work with me. It's just a thought experiment. I know that might send a shudder through your spine, the very idea of it. But work with this thought experiment. If we found the bones of Jesus, and they could be proved beyond all doubt that they were the bones of Jesus, would this affect your faith. Talk amongst yourselves. What do you think? I've done this thought experiment with quite a number of people. And oftentimes, if they're Christian people, they'll say something like, I mean, I, I can't imagine that. It really is a non-question. But if, if it were to be the case, it would affect some things. But I would still believe in God. I would still continue to trust in God. So it would affect it, but not, not too much. If that's your answer, May I suggest to you that you have not yet understood the importance of the resurrection of Jesus and how it is really the foundation of all, not some, all Christian hope. You want to know what the right answer is, the correct answer, which I'm about to show you in just a moment? The correct answer is to say this, I cannot fathom that that could ever be the case. But if they found the bones of Jesus, and it could be proved beyond all doubt that they were the bones of Jesus, my entire faith would collapse. That is the only correct answer. Now, lest you think that I've been kind of playing with you a little bit here, that is not my thought experiment. I didn't make that up. I get that directly from the Apostle Paul. So if you have a Bible... Why don't you turn it to the book of 1 Corinthians that Kevin read for us earlier. Let me show you exactly where I get this from. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, look with me at verse 17. Here is how it begins. And if Christ has not been raised, let's just stop there. Notice that tiny little word, if. So what, what the Apostle Paul is doing right here is he is doing a thought experiment. He's saying, if Christ was, has not been raised, and now he's going to go on to give some potential consequences that would happen if we found the bones of Jesus, if Jesus was not actually raised from the dead. What difference would this make? Paul's answer, much like Mark Manson's, is this. Everything is doomed. But actually... It's even worse than that. Let's track some of the consequences that Paul gives. Here's the first one. If Christ has not been raised, then trusting in God, it's totally useless. It is useless for you to trust in God. So look again with me at verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Futile or useless. So Jesus is the one perfect man who's ever lived in history. Even Gandhi talks about him as being far more loving than Gandhi or anyone else who speaks of Jesus knows he is one of the greatest humans, if not the greatest people will say, who ever lived. Jesus trusted him, entrusted himself to God. Psalm 16, for instance, says Jesus entrusted his soul to God because he said he trusted that God would not abandon him to the grave. But if Jesus' bones are found, 
It means that God did abandon him to the grave. It means that Jesus trusted in God and it was just foolish of him to do so because God abandoned him in the grave. And here's the follow-up from that. If God will abandon a man like Jesus, the most loving man who's ever lived, if God will abandon him, then how could you ever sing, because he lives, I can face tomorrow? Because if God will abandon Jesus to the grave, he might abandon you as well. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith, your trust in God, it's totally useless. Here's the next point. If Christ has not been raised, then the dark spiritual powers have won. In verses 24 to 26, uh, Paul's going to go on and he's going to talk about the authorities, the powers, the rulers, and he's referring to dark, evil, spiritual powers. And God sent Jesus into this world to make a full attack upon these evil powers, to fight against them and to defeat them. The cross and the resurrection was God's greatest attack upon the evil powers. But listen, if Jesus is dead, if he lies buried within the earth, then God's greatest attack upon the evil powers has failed and the universe is in the hands of the enemy. If Christ has not been raised, the dark spiritual powers have won. But it gets even worse than that. Isn't this encouraging? Let's keep going, shall we? Here's the third point. If Christ has not been raised, then we are still condemned for our sins. We're still condemned Again, look at verse 17 with me. Here's verse 17 again. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. The resurrection is God's proof that he's accepted Jesus' sacrifice for our sins. You can think of it like God's receipt to say the debt has been paid. There is no more outstanding payments that must be made for sin. But listen, what he's saying right here is if Christ has not been raised, all this talk of forgiveness... It's all total fantasy. All these songs that you like to sing about Jesus washing away your sins and the peace of having a good conscience and not standing condemned on judgment day, it is all misguided. It is all fantasy. For if Christ has not been raised from the dead, he has not paid the sacrifice for our sins. So we cannot have peace in this life that our sins have been forgiven. And even worse, we will stand before God's judgment seat one day and we will stand condemned. One more, then we're going to turn the corner. Finally, if Christ has not been raised, then all deceased Christians have perished. All deceased Christians have perished. Look with me at verse 18 now. Then those also who have fallen asleep, that's a euphemism for death, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Of course, as Christians, our great comfort comes from the fact that our, our brothers and sisters in Christ who have died, they are with God right now, and one day Jesus is going to come back and God is going to raise all of his people from the dead, give us a great reunion together, and bring us into a new heavens and a new earth. But what Paul is saying right here is if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then all who have died already in Christ are, are lost, they've perished, and you're lost and you'll perish, and there will be no resurrection from the dead. There there is no future hope. So bring this together now. Mark Manson has been honest enough to face the uncomfortable truth that everything is doomed. The Apostle Paul takes that to another level. 
Because Mark Manson is only saying everything is doomed in this life, but Paul is saying if there is a God, which he says there is, if Christ has not been raised, then you're not just doomed in this life, we're doomed in the next. For we all stand condemned in our sins, and we will not make it through judgment day. Because if God did his best to save us through Jesus, but death defeated Jesus, it means God has lost. It means Jesus has lost. It means the dark powers have won. Death has backed us all into a corner. Really, here's what it is. It's checkmate. This is the uncomfortable truth. Are you feeling uncomfortable? Here's the good news. This is the other half now. Let's change everything. This is where we now come to discover the hope. So we've looked at the uncomfortable truth. Here's the second thing I want us to do. I want us to rejoice now in the unexpected hope. Now, I read Mark Manson's book. It it caught my attention because he, he was so honest to say, if there's no God, then everything is doomed. And I said, at least this guy's being honest. He's not trying to avoid all of this. But then he promised in his book to provide a hope for us, a hope that could face death, uh, could give us strength in this life, that would be able to give us all the things that we need. And I just thought, I wonder what this author is going to provide for us. I mean, millions of people are buying this guy's book. What is it that he's going to say that can give us hope in the face of the uncomfortable truth that everything is doomed? What hope does he offer that can defeat death, grant immortality, and strengthen us in this life? I got to be honest, when I finally got to the chapter on hope, I'm pretty sure I burst out laughing, like out loud. I just could not even believe what I was reading. Here's what he says your great hope is. After all of his book of the uncomfortable truth, he says, the great hope of the human race lies in artificial intelligence. AI. So, so what he's saying is, he argues, and it's, it's pretty, pretty amazing how he says it all. It sounds very convincing, but you start thinking on it. He says, pretty soon, supercomputers are going to solve all of our problems in this world. And then where he goes is that the, the, they're going to create this whole entire virtual world so that your consciousness can be uploaded into the cloud so that even though your body will die, your consciousness can now live in an in a individually tailored, computer-simulated world that AI can create for you you and for all of eternity, you can live in this blissful cloud that the AI has created for you. I mean, honestly, someone needs to watch The Terminator or The Matrix because that's not what happens once AI takes over. That's not what I think happens. I, I don't even know where to go with that, let alone, I mean, first of all, if all the energy in the universe eventually gets used up, how are the supercomputers and AI even going to run? I don't know how we solve that one. It surely is not eternal. But I can't even give it much more time because, honestly, I thought, is that really the hope that you're going to offer us? Not only that, it's not a hope for me. There's no, no, no iPhone that I've got is going to be able to do that yet. This, it, even if you got to that, it's going to take thousands of years. So there's no hope for me in all of that. But let's leave that one aside. Let's press in on what Christianity says is actual hope. What does Christianity offer to a universe where everything is ultimately doomed, where sin condemns us, where dark powers enslave us, and where death defeats us? We've already said that if Christ has not been raised from the dead, Christianity offers you nothing. If he has not been raised, forget it all. It's not hope at all. However, Let me show you what is perhaps the very best word in all of the Bible. 
It is at the very beginning of verse 20. What is the little word at the beginning of verse 20? It is that little word, but. We use that word, but, in the middle of a sentence when we are about to say something which is going to be in sharp contrast with everything that has come before it. So so we might say something like, uh, my brother was dying of cancer. He was coming to the very end, but... The chemo treatments worked, and he's cancer-free. We might say, the little girl, she was dove into the water. She, she started to drown. She was going down for the second, the third time. She was under, but the lifeguard drove, dove into the water, pulled her out of the water, gave her CPR, and she is alive. That three-letter little, little word, but, is one of the best words in all of Scripture because really that little word represents the hinge on which every single great story turns, doesn't it? That's what Tom was talking about earlier. Every single great story that you've ever heard always moves down into this place of all things being lost, of darkness, of really everything is doomed. But something happens in the story that evil gets defeated and and good wins and there is a happily ever after, as Tom talked to us about earlier. So just, just think of some. He talked about Cinderella. Let's think about Snow White. Snow White gets deceived by the evil, wicked queen. She eats the poison apple. She falls into an eternal sleep. The wicked queen has won. All things are doomed because evil has conquered. But the prince kisses Snow White. She awakens from her eternal sleep. The evil queen is defeated and Snow White ascends her throne. All great stories have this moment, this hinge moment. They're all represented by that little three-letter word. To put it totally differently, there's a sports channel called TSN. TSN started something called the TSN Turning Point. And so whenever they show a big game, they'll look back at the game and they will show you the turning point in the game, the the hinge point when everything changed. So your team was losing, you were down by three goals going into the third period, but maybe one player made a great hit along the boards. That created a succession of other things, which scored a goal, which created the momentum so that your team eventually wins the Stanley Cup. As Canucks fans, this doesn't happen to us. But imagine it for other people. (laughs) So this is the TSN turning point. The TSN turning point is that moment in the game where you might not know it in the game, but the whole game has changed. The victory was secured in that moment, even though you probably didn't even know that it happened. Now, put this together. The Bible story declares that everything is doomed because of human sin. God sent his son into this world in order to rescue us from our sin, to rescue us from our fallen state, to make it so our sins could be forgiven. He sent his son to overthrow the evil powers that enslave us. He sent his son to defeat our great enemy, which is death itself. However, God's great assault on sin, Satan, and death, it seemed that it had failed. Jesus, God's great champion, God's great warrior, was defeated when he was crucified, when he was buried inside a tomb and a heavy stone was placed in front of the door, all showing a complete and final and decisive defeat. God had been outmaneuvered. God had been backed into a corner. Checkmate. 
verse 20. But, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead. This is the hinge. Listen, the, the resurrection of Jesus is the TSN turning point of all history. You might not see it right now within the game of life, but what the Bible is saying is that's the moment when everything changed. The resurrection of Jesus is the beginning of the great reversal of the uncomfortable truth that was pushing us so far to a place where everything was doomed. But Christ was raised from the dead, and now everything is being reversed from there. This is the message of hope. How does this work? Let's just reverse everything we just talked about. First of all, we said that if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then every deceased Christian has already perished. But Christ has been raised from the dead. Therefore, what Paul is going to argue is there's great hope for every single person who gives their life to Jesus Christ that they too will be raised from the dead. And the language, which we'll just see in one second here, is that Paul says that when God raised Jesus from the dead, he calls him the first fruits of the dead. What does that mean? You ever been up to the Okanagan, kind of mid-June, late June, driving along the road, and you see a little sign, first cherries of the season. When I see that sign, I pull an e-brake and right into the cherry stand, and we buy one of those. They're too expensive at that point. We buy them, and we eat them. There's hardly any cherries available, but there's a tiny little thing that you can eat. Now, here's the question. What does that tiny little box of cherries say to you when it's the first cherries of the season? It says there is a great harvest to come. This is just the sample. This is just the first fruits. It's just the, 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 the sampler of everything that is to come when millions and millions of cherries fill all the fruit stands and you can eat, well, as many as you can, your body can handle and you can enjoy them. That is what this verse is saying, uh, this is what God did with Jesus. He raised him from the dead as a sample, as a foretaste, as the first fruits of what he is going to do when Jesus finally returns and he raises all his people from the dead. So look with me now at verses 20 to 23. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. What's the order? Christ, the first fruits. Then at his coming, when he returns, those who belong to Christ. Those who belong to Christ. So this is such hope for us. I mean, here at Central, just this last week, Janet Leach passed away, and so we grieve with our brother Alex, who misses his wife dearly. But as the Scriptures say, we grieve, but not as those who have no hope. For my dear brother Alex, and for all of you who are missing those good brothers and sisters who we lost here at Central, a day is coming. And soon will come when Jesus will return and he will raise all of his people, all who belong to Christ, will be raised and there will be a giant reunion when we see them all again and we are brought into a new heavens and a new earth. Oh, rejoice in this unexpected hope. That's the first reversal. Then think of the next one. If Christ has not been raised, we also said that we are still condemned in our sins, but Christ has been raised, so therefore forgiveness is now possible for us. In Jesus, sin has met its match. 
through his death, through his resurrection, the, sin, the power of sin has been broken. So let me ask you personally, do you need forgiveness for your sins? When you look over your life, do you see the things that you have done, the black deeds that you have done that you regret, the way that you have treated other people poorly, the way you've not loved or worshipped your creator the way that you ought to? The Bible calls all of that sin. And because of our sin, we stand condemned. But... The good news is God raised Jesus from the dead. The debt has been paid for anyone who will come to Jesus Christ and say, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Cleanse me of my sins. So listen, this very day, you can know peace in your conscience for having your sins forgiven. This very day, you can have hope that when you stand before God on Judgment Day, for all will stand before God on Judgment Day, that there will be no one there to condemn you. There will be no debt that must be paid. For Jesus' death and resurrection says, the debt has been paid. So who will pay your debt? Will you have to pay it? Or will you allow Jesus to pay it for you? Rejoice in the unexpected hope that Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has paid the debt of sin for all who come to him. And then finally, If Christ has not been raised, we said, the dark powers have won. But Christ has been raised from the dead. So again, the decisive moment, the TSN turning point in the game has happened. We may not see it. People are still dying. There's still evil in this world. We say, it doesn't seem like Jesus accomplished anything. Ah, but it's the TSN turning point. You didn't know it when you were in the middle of the game, but that one moment was the hinge. It was the turning point. And after that, victory was secure. You can only see it from the end of the game, but that's the turning point. The Bible declares that Jesus' resurrection is exactly that. It's the decisive moment in history when everything changed. Now listen to Paul's description in verses 24 to 27, of really, this is the happily ever after. This is a decisive and total and complete victory. Listen to his language, verses 24 to 27. Then, Paul says, comes the end. When Jesus delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. That's all the dark, evil powers. For Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. There's a famous story about a chess champion named Paul Morphy. Paul Morphy was invited to a home with a bunch of fellow chess players for an evening of games. And so they all sat down around the dinner table uh, talking about all their past victories and things like this. And, And Paul Morphy, as he was eating, he noticed up on the wall, very prominently, there was hung a famous picture that involved the game of chess. Here is the picture. This is a very well-known painting from uh, a a painter named Friedrich Ries. And and as you can see in this picture, this actually it's just called The Game of Life. That's the name of the painting, The Game of Life. It's inspired by a a popular play known as Faust. On the left, you can see this is meant to be the devil. The devil is playing this young man, Faust, and they're playing for Faust's soul. That's The Game of Life. 
You'll notice that the devil is playing with black pieces. These are meant to represent sins or vices. And Faust is playing with white pieces, which are meant to represent virtues. But as you can see, Faust has not been playing the game of life very wisely at all. In fact, you can see the devil has deceived him and tricked him in so many ways that he has committed many sins so that he hardly has any pieces left on the board. All of his pieces have been knocked off. In fact, the entire situation is hopeless for as famous chess players look at the setup on this board, they all say that just within one move, the devil will have Faust in checkmates. His life is over. And you can see the despair, the tension on his face as he looks at the way that he has played life and he sees that he has lost. He sees that he is in checkmate. Even the angel glancing over, that angel doesn't look very impressed to me, looking like a note of sadness in the angel's eyes. So this is the painting that was hanging on the wall as Paul Morphy was looking at it during dinner. And many a chess player has looked at this painting and said, no, it's impossible. Faust cannot win. The situation is hopeless. It truly is checkmate. After dinner, Paul Morphy decided to get up and take a closer look. He walked up close to the painting and he stared intently at it for some time. After a long while of looking at the painting, he just suddenly exclaimed to the whole room, the king has one more move. The, the king has one more move. And, and the crowd kind of turned to him in the room and, and they knew what he was talking about and they immediately said to him, no, 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 that's impossible. It's checkmate. The game is over. Not even you, Paul Morphy, the great chess champion, not even you could save Faust's game. But they decided to try. So they brought out a chessboard. They put it down on the table. They arranged the pieces exactly as they are within the painting. And then to everyone's surprise, Paul Morphy made the king move one position, which then created a succession of moves, which in the end defeated the devil and saved Faust's soul. Friends, on this Easter Sunday, we've got to begin by facing the uncomfortable truth that everything is doomed. We got, if we're going to have any real hope, we've got to face that first. Any hope that we want to offer others or have for ourselves must be able to solve the uncomfortable truth. And of course, as we've seen here, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then there can be no hope at all. But the king had one more move. Jesus did not lie behind that stone forever laid buried in the earth. That stone was rolled away. He came out of the grave, ascended back to his father, and reigns now at the right hand of God, and one day will come into this world to judge all people and to bring his people into a new heavens and a new earth. The king had one more move, and that one more move, when all seemed lost, when all seemed doomed, created a succession of moves which will result in the end, in the complete salvation of anyone who comes to Jesus Christ. So here's what I just simply want to ask you. Do you have that hope? Do you, as Paul says, do you belong to Jesus? For only those who belong to Jesus will be raised from the dead, have their sins forgiven, and will enter into God's new world. Do you have that hope? How do you get it? You simply come before Jesus and you say, Forgive me of my sins. Forgive me for not living for you. Forgive me for being my own God, my own king, so to speak. I want to bow the knee and I want to give you my life, asking that you would forgive my sins, 
Save me on, great, on that great judgment day and bring me into your new world. Entrust your life to him. This is the hope that can bring you through anything. This is the hope that can carry you through something like COVID-19, but not just COVID-19. This is the hope that can carry you through the worst possible sufferings of life. This is the hope that will sustain you on your deathbed. And this is the only hope that you can have when we all stand before God on judgment day. And what a hope it is to know that you and I can stand before the judge of the universe having no fear because we have on our, on our debt sheet, it says, paid in full. There's nothing owing and we are welcomed into our Father's eternal presence. So, I simply ask you today, do you have that hope? Call upon Jesus, ask him to forgive your sins, give him your life, and you can have that hope as well. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then everything truly is doomed. But Christ has been raised from the dead. Rejoice in this unexpected hope. Let's pray together. I want to give you a moment, even as you are at home or wherever you are, in the quietness of your own heart, Did you come before Jesus and say, Jesus, forgive my sins. Save me, rescue me. I'm giving you my life. Let me give you just a moment to do that in the quietness of your own heart. Father, that is our hope. We ask that you would have mercy on us because of what Jesus has done for us. Forgive our sins because of what Jesus did for us. Receive us into your eternal kingdom because of what Jesus did for us. We praise you, Father, that you would give us your only son to die on that cross for us. We praise you that you raised him from the dead. And we long for the day when we will belong to you, when we will be with you forever in your presence, seeing your face. Thank you for the great hope that you give us through your Son, Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.